Section twenty one of the Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men and Things by William Hazlitt. Section twenty one. The New School of Reform. A Dialogue between a Rationalist and a Sentimentalist. Part one. Rationalist. What is it you so particularly object to the school? Is there anything so very obnoxious in the doctrine of utility which they profess? or in the design to bring about the greatest possible good by the most efficacious and disinterested means sentimentalist disinterested enough indeed since their plan seems to be to sacrifice every individual comfort for the good of the whole can they find out no better way of making human life smooth and pleasant than by drying up the brain and curdling the blood i do not want society to resemble a living skeleton whatever these job's comforters may do they are like the fox in the fable. They have no feeling themselves, and would persuade others to do without it. Take away the dulce of the poet, and I do not see what is to become of the utile. It is the common error of the human mind, of forgetting the end in the means. Rationalist. I see you are at your sentimentalities again. Pray tell me, is it not their having applied this epithet? to some of your favourite speculations, that has excited this sudden burst of spleen against them. Sentimentalist. At least I cannot retort this phrase on those printed circulars, which they throw down areas and fasten under knockers, but pass on for that. Answer me, then. What is there agreeable or ornamental in human life, that they do not explode with fanatic rage? What is there sordid and cynical? that they do not eagerly catch at? What is there that delights others, that does not disgust them? What that disgusts others, with which they are not delighted? I cannot think that this is owing to philosophy, but to a sinister bias of mind, inasmuch as a marked deficiency of temper is a more obvious way of accounting for certain things than an entire superiority of understanding. The ascetics of old thought they were doing God good service by tormenting themselves and denying others the most innocent amusements. Who doubts now that in this, armed as they were with texts and authorities and awful denunciations, they were really actuated by a morose and envious disposition that had no capacity for enjoyment itself, or felt a malicious repugnance to the idea of it in anyone else? What in them took the garb of religion, with us puts on the semblance of philosophy. And instead of dooming the heedless and refractory to hell-fire or the terrors of purgatory, our modern polemics set their disciples in the stocks of utility, or throw all the elegant arts and amiable impulses of humanity into the limbo of political economy. Rationalist I cannot conceive what possible connection there can be between the weak and mischievous enthusiasts you speak of and the most enlightened reasoners of the nineteenth century, 
They would laugh at such a comparison. Sentimentalist. Self-knowledge is the last thing which I should lay to the charge of soi-disant philosophers. But a man may be a bigot without a particle of religion. A monk or an inquisitor in a plain coat, and professing the most liberal opinions. Rationalist. You still deal as usual in idle sarcasms and flimsy generalities. Will you descend to particulars and state facts before you draw inferences from them? Sentimentalist. In the first place, then, they are mostly Scotchmen, lineal descendants of the Covenanters and Cameronians, and inspired with the true John Knox zeal for mutilating and defacing the carved work of the sanctuary. Rationalist. Hold, hold! This is vulgar prejudice and personality. Sentimentalist. But it's the fact, and I thought you called for facts. Do you imagine if I hear a fellow in Scotland abusing the author of Waverley, who has five hundred hearts beating in his bosom, because there is no religion in his works, and a fellow in Westminster doing the same thing, because there is no political economy in them, that anything will prevent me from supposing that this is virtually the same Scotch peddler with his pack of utility at his back, whether he deals in tape and stays, or in drawling compilations of histories and reviews. Rationalist. I did not know you had such an affection for Sir Walter. Sentimentalist. I said the author of Waverley. Not to like him would be not to love myself or human nature of which he has given so many interesting specimens, though for the sake of that same human nature I have no liking to Sir Walter. Those few and recent writers, on the contrary, who by their own account have discovered the true principles of the greatest happiness to the greatest numbers, are easily reconciled to the Tory and the bigot, because they here feel a certain superiority over him. But they cannot forgive the great historian of life and manners, because he has enlarged our sympathy with human happiness beyond their pragmatical limits. They are not even good haters, for they hate not what degrades and afflicts, but what consoles and elevates the mind. Their plan is to block out human happiness wherever they see a practicable opening to it. Rationalist. But perhaps their notions of happiness differ from yours. They think it should be regulated by the doctrine of utility. Whatever is incompatible with this they regard as spurious and false, and scorn all base compromises and temporary palliatives. Sentimentalist. Yes, just as the religious fanatic thinks there is no salvation out of the pale of his own communion, and damns without scruple every appearance of virtue and piety beyond it. Poor David Deans. How would he have been surprised to see all his follies, his right-hand defections, and his left-hand compliances? and his contempt for human learning, blossom again in a knot of sophists and professed illuminés. Such persons are not to be treated as philosophers and metaphysicians, but as conceited sectaries and ignorant mechanics. In neither case is the intolerant and proscribing spirit a deduction of pure reason, indifferent to consequences, but the dictate of presumption, prejudice, and spiritual pride or a strong desire in the elect to narrow the privilege of salvation to as small a circle as possible, and in a few and recent writers, to have the whole field of happiness and argument to themselves. 
The enthusiasts of old did all they could to strike the present existence from under our feet, to give us another, to annihilate our natural affections and worldly vanities, so as to conform us to the likeness of God. The modern skeolists offer us utopia in lieu of our actual enjoyments, for warm flesh and blood would give us a head of clay and a heart of steel, and conform us to their own likeness, a consummation not very devoutly to be wished. Where is the use of getting rid of the trammels of superstition and slavery, if we are immediately to be handed over to these new ferrets and inspectors of a police philosophy, who pay domiciliary visits to the human mind, catechise an expression, impale a sentiment, put every enjoyment to the rack, leave you not a moment's ease or respite, and imprison all the faculties in a round of cant phrases, the shibboleth of a party. They are far from indulging or even tolerating the strain of exulting enthusiasm expressed by Spencer. What more felicity can fall to creature than to enjoy delight with liberty, and to be lord of all the works of nature, to reign in the air from earth to highest sky, to feed on flowers and weeds of glorious feature, to taste whatever thing doth please the eye, who rests not pleased with such happiness, well worthy he to taste of wretchedness. Without air or light they grope their way underground, till they are made fierce with dark keeping. Their attention confined to the same dry, hard, mechanical subjects, which they have not the power nor the will to exchange for the others, frets and corrodes, and soured and disappointed, they wreak their spite and mortification on all around them. Rationalist, I cannot but think your imagination runs away with your candour. Surely the writers you are so ready to inveigh against labour hard to correct errors and reform grievances. Sentimentalist, yes, because the one affords exercise for their vanity, and the other for their spleen. They are attracted by the odour of abuses, and regale on fancied imperfections. But do you suppose they like anything else better than they do the government? Are they on any better terms with their own families or friends? Do they not make the lives of every one they come near a torment to them, with their pedantic notions and captious egotism? Do they not quarrel with their neighbours, placard their opponents, supplant those on their own side of the question? Are they not equally at war with the rich and the poor? And having failed, for the present, in their project of cashiering kings, do they not give scope to their troublesome, overbearing humour, by taking upon them to snub and lecture the poor gratis? Do they not wish to extend the greatest happiness to the greatest numbers, by putting a stop to population, to relieve distress by withholding charity, to remedy disease by shutting up hospitals? Is it not a part of their favourite scheme, their nostrum, their panacea, to prevent the miseries and casualties of human life, by extinguishing it in the birth? Do they not exult in the thought, and revile others who do not agree to it, of plucking the crutch from the cripple, and tearing off the bandages from the agonised limb? Is it thus they would gain converts, or make an effectual stand against acknowledged abuses? By holding up a picture of the opposite side, the most sordid, squalid, harsh and repulsive, that narrow reasoning, a want of imagination, 
and a profusion of bile can make it. There is not enough of evil already in the world, but we must harden our feelings against the miseries that daily, hourly, present themselves to our notice, and set our faces against everything that promises to afford any one the least gratification or pleasure. This is their idea of a perfect commonwealth, where each member performs his part in the machine, taking care of himself and no more concerned about his neighbours than the iron and woodwork, the pegs and nails in a spinning jenny. Good screw! Good wedge! Good tenpenny nail! Are they really in earnest, or are they bribed, partly by their interests, partly by the unfortunate bias of their minds, to play the game into the adversary's hands? It looks like it, and the government gives them good oeillade. Mr. Blackwood pats them on the back. Mr. Canning grants an interview and plays the amiable. Mr. Hobhouse keeps the peace. One of them has a place at the India House, but then nothing is said against the India House, though the poor and pious old lady sweats and almost swoons at the conversations which her walls are doomed to hear, but of which she is ashamed to complain. One triumph of the school is to throw old ladies into hysterics. The obvious, I should still hope not the intentional, effect of the Westminster tactics is to put every volunteer on the same side hors de combat, who is not a zealot of the strictest sect of those they call political economists, to come behind you with dastard, cold-blooded malice, and trip up the heels of those stragglers whom their friends and patrons in the quarterly have left still standing, to strip the cause of reform out of seeming affection to it, of everything like a mesalliance, with elegance, taste, decency, common sense, or polite literature, as their fellow labourers in the same vineyard had previously endeavoured to do, out of acknowledged hatred, to discuss the friends of humanity, to cheer its enemies, and for the sake of indulging their unbridled dogmatism, envy, and uncharitableness, to leave nothing intermediate between the ultra-Toryism of the courtly scribes and their ultra-radicalism, between the extremes of practical wrong and impracticable right. Their, our, antagonists, will be very well satisfied with this division of the spoil. Give them the earth, and any one who chooses may take possession of the moon for them. Rationalist. You allude to their attacks on the Edinburgh Review. Sentimentalist. And to their articles on Scott's novels. On hospitals, on national distress, on Moore's life of Sheridan and on every subject of taste, feeling, or common humanity. Sheridan, in particular, is termed an unsuccessful adventurer. How gently this Jacobin jargon will fall on ears polite! This is what they call attacking principles and sparing persons. They spare the persons, indeed, of men in power, who have places to give away, and attack the characters of the dead or the unsuccessful with impunity. Sheridan's brilliant talents— his genius, his wit, his political firmness, which all but they admire, draw forth no passing tribute of admiration. His errors, his misfortunes, and his death, which all but they deplore, claim no pity. This indeed would be to understand the doctrine of utility to very little purpose, if it did not at the first touch weed from the breast every amiable weakness and imperfect virtue which had never taken root there.
but they make up for utter want of sympathy with the excellences or failings of others by a proportionable self-sufficiency. Sheridan, Fox, and Burke were mere tyros and schoolboys in politics, compared to them, who are the mighty landmarks of these latter times. Ignorant of those principles of the greatest happiness to the greatest numbers, which a few and recent writers have promulgated, it is one way of raising a pure and lofty enthusiasm, as to the capacities of the human mind, to scorn all that has gone before us. Rather say, this dwelling with overacted disgust on common frailties, and turning away with impatience from the brightest points of character, is a discipline of humanity, which should be confined as much as possible to the Westminster School. Believe me, their theories and their mode of enforcing them stand in the way of reform. Their philosophy is as little addressed to the head as to the heart. It is fit neither for man nor beast. It is not founded on any sympathy with the secret yearnings or higher tendencies of man's nature, but on a rankling antipathy to whatever is already best. Its object is to offend, its glory to find out and wound the tenderest part. What is not malice is cowardice, and not candour. They attack the weak and spare the strong, to indulge their officiousness and add to their self-importance. Nothing is said in the Westminster Review of the treatment of Mr. Buckingham by the East India Company. It might lessen the writer's fear of utility, as Mr. Hall goes from Leicester to Bristol, to save more souls. They do not grapple with the rich to wrest his superfluities from him. In this they might be foiled. But trample on the poor, a safe and pick-thank office, and wrench his pittance from him with their logical instruments and lying arguments. Let their system succeed, as they pretend it would, and diffuse comfort and happiness around, and they would immediately turn against it as effeminate, insipid, and sickly, for their tastes and understandings are too strongly braced to endure any but the most unpalatable truths and the bitterest ingredients. Their benefits are extracted by the caesarean operation. Their happiness, in short, is that which will never be, just as their receipt for a popular article in a newspaper or review is one that will never be read. Their articles are never read, and if they are not popular, no others ought to be so. The more any flimsy stuff is read and admired, and the more service it does to the sale of a journal, so much the more does it debauch the public taste, and render it averse to their dry and solid lucubrations. This is why they complain of the patronage of my sentimentalities, as one of the sins of the Edinburgh Review, and why they themselves are determined to drench the town with the most unsavoury truths, without one drop of honey to sweeten the gall. Had they felt the least regard to the ultimate success of their principles, of the greatest happiness to the greatest numbers, though giving pain might be one paramount and primary motive, they would have combined this object with something like the comfort and accommodation of their unenlightened readers. Rationalist I see no ground for this philippic, except in your own imagination. Sentimentalist. Tell me, do they not abuse poetry, painting, music? Is it, think you, for the pain or the pleasure these things give? Or because they are without eyes, ears, imaginations? Is that an excellence in them, or the fault of these arts? Why do they treat Shakespeare so cavalierly? Is there any one they would set up against him? any Sir Richard Blackmore they patronise, 
or do they prefer Racine, as Adam Smith did before them? Or what are we to understand? Rationalist. I can answer for it they do not wish to pull down Shakespeare in order to set up Racine on the ruins of his reputation. They think little indeed of Racine. Sentimentalist. Or of Molière either, I suppose. Rationalist. Not much. Sentimentalist. And yet these two contributed something to the greatest happiness of the greatest numbers. That is, to the amusement and delight of a whole nation for the last century and a half. But that goes for nothing in the system of utility, which is satisfied with nothing short of the good of the whole. Such benefactors of the species as Shakespeare, Racine, and Moliere, who sympathised with human character and feeling, in their finest and liveliest moods, can expect little favour from those few and recent writers who scorn the muse, and whose philosophy is a dull antithesis to human nature. Unhappy they who lived before their time. Oh, age of Louis the Fourteenth, and of Charles the Second, ignorant of the je ne sais quoi, and of the savoir vivre. Oh, Paris built, till now, of mud. Athens, Rome, Zusa, Babylon, Palmyra, barbarous structures of a barbarous period. Hide your diminished heads. Ye fens and dykes of Holland, ye mines of Mexico, what are ye worth? Oh, bridges raised, palaces adorned, cities built, fields cultivated without skill or science, how came ye to exist till now? Oh, pictures, statues, temples, altars, hearths, the poet's verse and solemn breathing airs, are ye not an insult on the great principles of few and recent writers? How came ye to exist without their leave? O Arkwright, unacquainted with spinning jennies! O Sir Robert Peel, unversed in calico printing! O generation of upstarts, what good could have happened before your time? What ill can happen after it? Rationalist. But at least you must allow the importance of first principles. Sentimentalist. Much as I respect a dealer in marine stores, in old rags and iron, both the goods and the principles are generally stolen. I see advertised in the papers elements of political economy by James Mill, and principles of political economy by John McCullough. Will you tell me in this case whose are the first principles? Which is the true Simon Pure? Strange that such difference should be, twixt Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Rationalist. You know we make it a rule to discountenance every attempt at wit, as much as the world in general abhor a punster. Sentimentalist. By your using the phrase attempts at wit, it would seem that you admit there is a true and a false wit. Then why do you confound the distinction? Is this logical, or even politic? Rationalist. The difference is not worth attending to. Sentimentalist. Still, I suppose you have a great deal of this quality, if you chose to exert it. Rationalist. I fancy not much. Sentimentalist. And yet you take upon you to despise it. I have sometimes thought that the great professors of the modern philosophy were hardly sincere in the contempt they expressed for poetry, painting, music, and the fine arts in general, that they were private amateurs and prodigious proficients under the rose, and like other lovers hid their passion as a weakness, that Mr. M. turned a barrel-organ, that Mr. P. warbled delightfully, that Mr. P. L. had a manuscript tragedy by him called The Last Man, 
which he withheld from the public not to compromise the dignity of philosophy by affording any one the smallest actual satisfaction during the term of his natural life rationalist oh no you are quite mistaken in this supposition if you are at all serious in it so far from being proficients or having wasted their time in these trifling pursuits i believe not one of the persons you have named has the least taste or capacity for them or any idea corresponding to them except mr bentham who is fond of music and says with his usual bonhomie which seems to increase with his age that he does not see why others should not find an agreeable recreation in poetry and painting sentimentalist you are sure this cynical humour of theirs is not affectation at least rationalist i am quite sure of it sentimentalist then i am sure it is intolerable presumption in them to think their want of taste and knowledge qualifies them to judge ex cathedra of these arts or is a standard by which to measure the degree of interest which others do or ought to take in them it is the height of impertinence mixed up with the worst principle as to the excesses or caprices of posthumous fame like other commodities it soon finds its level in the market data optimo is a tolerably general rule it is not of forced or factitious growth people would not trouble their heads about shakespeare if he had given them no pleasure or cry him up to the skies if he had not first raised them there the world are not grateful for nothing shakespeare it is true had the misfortune to be born before our time and is not one of those few and recent writers who monopolize all true greatness and wisdom though not the reputation of it to themselves he need not however be treated with contumely on this account the instance might be passed over as a solitary one we shall have a thousand political economists before we have another shakespeare End of section 21